The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 24, 1-18. And he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This is the word of the Lord. Now, before I jump in this morning, um, Sacred City, our gatherings are a little bit different by design. Um, They're meant to be slower. They're meant to be longer. uh, They're meant to be more uh, engaging as you're reading and as you're repeating. Um, We think it's part of the work of the ministry. The body is the body. All of us are meant to be engaged on Sunday morning. It's not just something that the professionals do, something we all do together. That's why there's reading back and forth. And one of the, um, one of the, I guess, hallmarks of Sacred City, and I'm just going to let you know, is that, well, maybe just me, I preach long sermons, okay, if you didn't know that by now. Um, I preach long sermons because, one, I don't know any other way to do it, okay? I don't know any other way. I can't do it shorter. I've tried. Um, but secondly, we do this because our our attention spans have been hijacked by technology. And our news feeds, the way we read news now on our phones, we, if, tell me if you do this, you read headlines. Oh yeah, I think I pretty much understand that. Oh yeah, I get that. And what this does to us is it makes us people of very little substance. We assume that we know what we're talking about on a topic. And yet if we got into a really intellectual debate or discussion with a human being, we would find out really quick that our, our knowledge is very shallow on these, on these, on these topics. And unfortunately that has been the case with the church for about 40 years, at least, at least 40 years. Uh, Christianity in America has become very shallow and uh, we, we can't answer critics. We can't answer people. We can't debate intellectually. And so what I try to do on Sunday morning is to present an argument, is to teach the scriptures in a longer, more sustained way to actually hopefully resist some of this trend, okay? It's like you don't work out and you, you lose muscle tone and you get flabby. And if you don't run, you're, you, you go run a mile, your time will be slower than when you were 16. I'm just going to tell you that, right? But if you keep at it and you keep working and you keep 
working against gravity and working against age and fighting against it, you can gain strength, you can gain stamina, you can gain fitness. It's the same thing with our with our mental capacity, as we focus, as we work hard to understand, as we study and as we read, we can counteract some of the changes that are happening to us because of technology. So I just wanted to fill you in. That's some of the reason, um, you know, that, that we have the service, the type of service that we do uh, at Sacred City, just so, just so you know. Now, I am really excited to preach this chapter of scripture this morning. It's a uh, Dramatic return to the Exodus, Exodus narrative. If you recall, um, in chapter 19, Dr. Alex preached it for us. The Hebrew people arrived at the base of Mount Sinai. And actually, do we have a picture of Mount Sinai this morning? Hope I have a picture of that. Do I have a picture of Mount Sinai this morning? Uh, that's not it. It could be it. Do I have the picture or do I not have the picture? I'm going to assume I don't have the picture. Okay. Um, no big deal. I have a, had a picture of it. It's a pretty vast landscape. It's pretty um, bare and stark and extreme. It's not a little hill that we would call a mountain in the Quad Cities, right? This is something epic of epic proportion. And at, in chapter 19, the people arrive at the base of Mount Sinai, and it's here that God manifested himself on top of the mountain in a majestic and terrifying display of his glory. We saw all of that in chapter 19. But then Moses interjects into the narrative the words that God gave him on top of the mountain, right? And so Moses is writing the story, and so it was all narrative. And then if you're writing a good story, this you never do this today. He did it back then. They did it back then. It's one of the evidences we have this is a true and authentic story, is he's writing this narrative. It's bringing you along. It's kept catching you up into this epic story. And then all of a sudden he spends, uh, you know, four chapters talking about the 10 commandments and the law, right? And you guys know, in your Bible reading, you're reading the story, you're loving it. And then all of a sudden you get into this section and you're like, what? He just fell off. Like what happened there? And we're going to see this over the next few chapters as well. It's going to describe the tabernacle and what God wants in the tabernacle and all the intricacies of the tabernacle. And it's kind of a, it's kind of, I would say, for most people, it's a boring section of scripture in, interjected into the narrative. Well, today we're coming back to the narrative aspect, right? Over the last 13 weeks, we have seen that we've studied each of the 10 commandments. We've learned about the law of God, all the rules to live as his people and to create a just society where the powerless are protected and human flourishing is maximized, and it got a little technical, it got maybe a little boring the past few months, but today we return back to Mount Sinai and our narrative, and we come back in, once again in dramatic fashion. And I'm going to give it away early today, all right? I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm just too moved by this text to build you up, build the suspense up, and just kind of leave you hanging. Here's what we're going. If you will if you will engage this morning, okay? And I get it. There's reasons. Here, I thank God that it's raining outside because we ain't got picnics to make it to. We don't have soccer games or baseball games this morning. So I'm like, thank you, God, for ruining our weekend so we can worship in peace today. <laughs> Praise God. At least I don't have that to worry about. But I know we got dinners and we've got things to go to. But I pray that we could focus in this morning, engage our heart and mind. Because listen, God is calling us to go higher up and to go deeper into his presence. That's it. God's calling us to go higher up, and he's calling us to go deeper into his presence. He's commanding us, actually, to come to him and to experience him and to see his glory and to be absolutely ravished by him. Now, that might sound super spiritual to you. That might sound kind of flaky and overly charismatic. Well, maybe it is but anything less is less than Christian. Anything less is less than the glorious good news of the gospel that promises this, this seeing the glory, experiencing God's presence, coming deeper in for the Christian. And so I would like to kind of stop right here this morning, pray for us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe before we even get into our text. Let me pray. Father, we've prayed a lot. This morning, and we do so because we're completely dependent upon you. There's nothing I can do this morning to 
create a sense of your glory, to create a sense of your grandeur, to make people see you or worship you or their eyes or their heart to be enlightened. There's nothing I can do. We're completely dependent upon the sovereign work of God and the power of your spirit and the power of your word. And so I ask this morning that you would think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords that it be all of you and none of me that you would touch our ears, touch our eyes. Let us see, let us hear, let us believe. Do the supernatural work that only you can do this morning. In Jesus' name, for your glory, Father, and our joy. Amen. All right, so this chapter is one big invitation from God to, ex- to see him, to experience him, to know him, love him, obey him, and find him supremely satisfying. That is what it means to worship God. Worshiping God is more than just singing. It literally means to be caught up into him, to be worshiped, to, to have your whole heart, mind, soul, spirit, body, strength, like enthralled with him. That's what it means. And this chapter is just one big call to worship, one big worship service. We're gonna see it right away. Look how, look how chapter 24, verse one, look how we, be, and we're going to be in the Bible. So open up your Bibles. If you've got it on your app, open up your app. Oh, there's Bibles spread out there on the floor if you need one. Chapter 24, verse one, then he, this is God speaking. Then God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Now look, this is verse one. This is a call to worship. Okay. Just like our gathering, this is how our gathering begins every single week. We begin it with a call to worship. Now, if you get here late, you never knew that, but now that you, now you know that. This is why we get here on time. So we hear God calling us to worship him. See, now listen, why? Everyone knows you must be called into the presence of greatness. Nobody interrupts a king, right? Nobody invites themselves over for dinner at the White House. If you do, you get tackled on the front lawn or maybe inside the front door, right? Depending how competent Secret service are at the moment, right? We've seen that a couple times. You must be called into the presence of greatness. How much more so with God? And this shows us something very special about the God of the Bible, unique to him. He, Yahweh, wants to be known. He wants us to come near to him, to experience him. He wants us to know him and to see him. He wants us to actually love us because he's lovable for one, but also because our hearts were made for his. Our souls were made for him. This is why when we first fall in love, if you have, we have this sense in our souls that this is what we were made for. Nobody has to tell you to think about her or think about him, right? Nobody has to tell you to text. Nobody has to tell you to go to Hallmark and get some sappy card. Nobody has to tell you to spend your money, right? You willingly do all those things because your heart is captured up in some great love. But you also, if you've had those feelings of love, those first feelings of love, you uh, have also realized that our relationships, uh, they can't stand that type of constant pressure. No person can satisfy this desire in us, this eternal desire in us that is meant to be satisfied by an eternal God. No human being can do it. St. Augustine knew this. He was a very, let's just say, impassioned young man. He loved, he said he loved love. And he could never get enough. He was very promiscuous. He um, slept around, right? He would go from one woman to the next. But when God called him and Augustine responded to God, he wrote in his confessions, he wrote this, that our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Augustine found out, just like C.S. Lewis and many others, that our desires are, 
are too big to be met by anything other than God. We get a sense of this when we fall in love, but we know that that feeling never lasts. And we know if we want that feeling to last and we try to make that feeling last, we put way too much pressure on our relationships. We're trying to tap into something beyond us and get, get something eternal, get something epic, transcendent out of something natural, and we can't do it. But thankfully, the God of the Bible who we crave and we desire in a deep and existential way, even if we're not aware of it. Now, you might think that you just, you know, you're just into stuff, right? You have this desire in you, but, but the reality is you were built by a, a, a glorious God. You were built for glory and your heart is restless until you find that glory in him. Thankfully, I mean, I can't imagine what the world would be like if this wasn't true. Thankfully, the God who built, him, built us for himself wants us to find him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to rest in him and come into his presence. He wants our deepest longings of our soul to be satisfied and satiated in him. And he says to all of us this morning, come up the mountain and come deeper in. Come up the mountain and come closer to me. Now, that's what he's saying. He's whispering to us. I am exactly what you're looking for. But we need to pause here, right? We need to pause here and we need to retrace our steps a bit. See, Exodus isn't just an isolated story plopped down in some random book. Exodus is a story that proceeds from and is built upon the foundation of the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And in the first few chapters of Genesis, we see that though God created everything good, here's the reality, God gave angels and human beings a free will. They were free in the sense that they could willingly choose to love God. You have no love if you don't have free will. We understand that, right? You have no love if you don't have the option to choose or not to choose, right? And so God gives Adam and Eve this free will so they could choose God, and he gives angels so they could choose to obey him, choose to love him, choose to enjoy him, choose to trust him, choose to obey him, or they could choose to diss him. They could choose to rebel him from him and sin against him. And we don't know, as you read the Bible, we don't know how long Adam and Eve enjoyed sinless perfection of an un, with an unhindered relationship with God. Can you imagine? Everything you long for, you're walking with. That eternal sense of love and rapture, every day you experience it. You can visibly see God and you can walk with him and touch him and talk to him. We don't know how long that lasted. We know they would walk with God in the cool of the day. They had all of their needs met and they were naked and unashamed. There was an intimacy and a vulnerability between them and God and between each other with no fear and no shame and no insecurities. It was absolutely blissful. We know that, but we don't know how long that happened because somewhere in that narrative, an angel chose to use his free will to rebel, to create a coup against God. This coup, it seems, kind of culminated in Satan tempting Adam and Eve to disobey God by doing the one thing he commanded them not to do, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this act of disobedience against a holy and omnibenevolent God was more than just a little oopsie-daisy. Theologian R.C. Sproul has famously called this nothing short of cosmic treason. This cosmic treason, as promised, resulted in a curse upon Adam and Eve and all of their posterity and all of creation itself. That means when we look at the world, it does not give us an accurate depiction of who God is nor how he created it. The world is not as it should be. It's broken. But so are we. We have been victimized, all of us, by other people's sins. But we have also committed ourselves cosmic treason against God by disobeying him in a million different ways. 
right? Now, if you need convincing of that, go back and listen to my Ten Commandments series. Hopefully, you got, none of us got unscathed through that, I think, right? And here we are in Exodus 24, and these people, this is post-Genesis 3. This is post the fall. These people have committed cosmic treason themselves. And so we need to have that in our not that knowledge in our minds as we're reading this text. These people are guilty of cosmic treason and they've been called up the mountain to experience God in a greater way. Now, what does that do for us? One, God isn't calling his sweet and innocent children to come up to him, right? He's not the, the old grandpa in the sky just wanting to fill them up with sugar. Come on, babies, come on up here. Sit on Papa's knee, right? That's not what he's doing. He can't do that. He's a good father. He's an eternal God. He's a holy God. He's a just God. And these folks have rebelled from him, have sinned against him. They're guilty of treason. Now, think about this. It's one thing to get an invitation to the White House. But what if your parents were Russian spies? Right? That, that invitation might change the way you feel about it. You, you, you might feel a little trepidation in approaching uh, the White House, right? What if you had committed treason against the United States of America and you get an invitation to the White House, right? There's going to be some fear, some appropriate fear there, right? You're going to be thinking, I'm getting called in to be judged. I'm getting called in I'm a criminal and I'm going to be judged and killed or put in prison. Something bad's going to happen. There would be something here preventing you from answering that invitation, wouldn't there? You might be aware of wrong that you have done. And so you probably, if you get this invitation, you're like, no, I'm not going. I won't accept that invitation. In fact, I'm going to stay as far away as possible because I fear retribution. I fear justice. I fear that I'll be judged. And you know what? Some of us feel that way about God. God's calling us in and we are afraid. He's calling me in to judge me. He's calling me in to destroy me. He's calling me in to crush me. He's calling me in to put impossible burdens on me. He's calling me in to ruin my life. He's calling me in to ruin my happiness. He's calling me in to make my life just frustrating and difficult. We know that we've sinned against him. We know there's something between us that separates us, but we just do our best to stay out of his presence. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to come to church. Maybe just once a week, maybe just once a month. Maybe just, I'm going to mitigate this. Can't get too close to him. If that's you this morning, I hope by the end of this sermon to show you a better way. But what if you, here's the reality. What if you're not, what if you weren't, and this is many of us in this room. Many of us, we know that we're guilty. We know that we're sinners. But there's also many of us who are completely unaware of our problem. Right? What if you get this invitation from the United the President and from the White House and you're completely unaware of the wrong that your parents had done and the wrong that you have done? You might walk into the presence of the United States of America and just you come in with a swagger and boom, they put the cuffs on you right there. In fact, this happens. This is hilarious. You know, all these things like stupid criminal things and they couldn't catch this, this criminal. They couldn't catch this criminal. So they sent them and said, hey, you won the lottery. Come pick it up at the police station. And they come walking in like, yeah! And they're like, slap the cuffs on them. Right? Now, that, like, you might be unaware. You might say, I am not. The sin is like such a 20th century word. We're beyond, aren't we beyond that? I don't think I'm guilty of cosmic treason, Justin. You might be completely aware of it. But it doesn't mean it's, re- it's not real doesn't mean there's not something there that's separating you from God and there's not something that's against you. So we have in this story, we have this problem and in this story, there's a great problem here, okay? God is calling people to him and yet there's something that's keeping them distant from him. Like we crave God, 
We deeply need him. We were made to know him, love him, and be near to him. But if we honestly look at our lives and our history, we would see that we have rebelled from him. We've disobeyed him and we are guilty of treason. And that leaves us unable to enter into his presence without the liability of judgment. Now, again, I don't think I need to convince most of us of that, but this is what Moses does. When there's this calling, the next thing Moses does, there's this temptation in us to say, you know what, Legal, the threat of legalism is real, and you know what, the law and the rules are so binding, let's just dumb it down Let's not talk about the Ten Commandments. Let's not talk about what God expects of us because we want people to to come to a cuddly grandfather in the sky. That's not what Moses does. God calls Moses to worship him, and you know what Moses does next? Look in verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. What's he doing? He's Everything God told him on the mountain... The Ten Commandments and all the law, how to live in a just society. Moses comes down and he tells people all the law. This is how you're supposed to live. This is what God expects of you for a good life, to glorify him. And what do the people do? And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then Moses, what's he do? Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, okay? He comes down, he tells them the Ten Commandments, tells them the law, people respond, yes, we'll do it. He's like, I'm gonna put this in writing. Hold on. Puts this in writing. Look what he says. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Okay, now let me pause here. The people, we, we, the people are gonna keep responding. Yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. And I want you to hear, the people are responding in the correct way. The people are responding in the right way. They responded like we should respond to all of the good commands that God gives us that we see in scripture. Yes, Lord, we'll do it. Like all the people up here responded this morning. Yes, Lord, I believe. Yes, Lord, we'll do it. God helping me. And we, this is important. And we might miss, because we have kind of like a cultural, we have a cultural distance from what's, about what's going on here. So we might miss what's going on, but I pray that you would hone in and focus here because this is about to be really important, okay? Verse five, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now, okay, this is, Different, okay? I'm just gonna say that. This is different. What we have here is God making a covenant with his people, all right? He's making a committed solemn oath and agreement with his people. And during this day and age, people would seal a deal by cutting a covenant. How do we, we, we have all kinds of ways of cutting a covenant. I'll talk about that in a minute, but this is how they did it. Not just the people of Israel, the surrounding nations as well. If you wanted to make an agreement with someone, this is how you did it. And it's interesting when God comes down here to make a, a, a deal with the people, he does it in the way they're used to. He does it in kind of the normal way. And this is what, this is what a normal covenant ceremony, covenant making ceremony would look like. There would be a recognition of the parties involved, part Party A, party B. They would state them by name. They would read the stipulations of the covenant. Party A is promising to do this. Party B is promising to do this. Okay? They would then confirm the covenant by killing an animal. Okay? They would literally cut it in half, and they would put half over here, and they'd put half over here, kind of making an aisle, and then the two parties would walk between the two cut up animals, this is why it's called cut a covenant, cut the animal, the two parties would walk together through these torn asunder pieces and they would, this would confirm the covenant. They would, they would literally say, let me be like these animals if I break this deal. These animals will torn apart. I, this is a blood oath I'm making to you. If, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, you can destroy me like you destroyed this animal. 
Shedding blood was the sign of the covenant, right? It was the sign and the seal that a covenant had actually taken place. There was a real agreement between these two parties. And after the ceremony, they would take the animal, the the torn up animal, and they would cook it and they would eat a meal together saying, we're more than just business partners. This is more than just a contractual relationship. We are committed friends. And so they would have what's called a covenant meal together and they would eat the animal that they had sacrificed to confirm this covenant. Now, I know what you're thinking. Maybe not all of you, but there's many of you that have said to me before and I've heard many times, how barbaric, how archaic, the shedding of blood, destroying an animal. Now, let me just ask you to think about the last wedding you went to, okay? A wedding is a covenant ceremony. It's a covenant confirmation ceremony. And you know what? If you think about it, I bet if it's a traditional wedding, it followed this covenant cutting procedure pretty closely. You're like, well, I don't remember any blood involved. Well, no, let me, let me explain. First, you have the statement of the parties involved. Oh, first, no, first, first you have an aisle, right? They walk down the aisle, they stand before the man of God, and he says, who gives this woman, right? And then he says the groom's name, and he says the bride's name, right? And so there's the statement of the parties involved, right? Second, we have reading of the stipulations of the covenant, right? We make vows to one another. Will you be there in sickness and in death? Yes, I will. We have vows. We have uh, reading of the stipulation that the, the preacher usually is telling this person to love her and to love him and to be faithful to one another. We have reading of the stipulations. Third, there was the sign of the covenant. Well, what do we do? We put rings on our fingers. We light can't, we take two candles and light them into one. And these are symbols of, and we do sand. We do all kind of new hipster things that I have to do when I do these wed, these new wed, these weddings all the time, right? Signs of the covenant. Now think about, we're looking back 3,500 years and we're going, how archaic, how weird, you know, look at all that stuff. And somebody, an alien steps into our wedding ceremonies and they're going, look how, what is, what are they doing? How weird is that? Right? And not only that, you, you thought, you know, well, we don't shed blood. That's disgusting. Well, really? Because the last, every single wedding I go to, you get invited to a reception afterwards. And at this reception, even though I do do a lot of hipster wedding, I still haven't been to a vegan reception. Thank God. <laughs> like, don't invite me. I won't come, okay? There, now listen, we, these animals are slaughtered somewhere else, of course. But did you know they bleed when we slaughter them? Do you know blood flows? Do you know you have to do something with the carcass and the body and the body parts? And do you know what we do in that reception? We have a covenant meal together. We sit down and we fellowship and there's the bride's family and there's the groom's family. And we're saying, hey, at least right now, we're gonna live as one big happy family. We'll fight about, you know, we'll fight about holidays later. Today, we're one big happy family. It's a covenant meal. We're more than just contractually obliged to one another. We're a family. This is exactly what's going on here. This is a wedding ceremony between God and the people. God is making a covenant with the Hebrew people. They are committing to follow the Ten Commandments and his laws, and he's committing to be their God and meet all their needs and lead them faithfully to the promised land. But they still have a problem, right? They've sinned. They've been unfaithful to the covenant. They're going to continue to sin and be unfaithful in the future. And how can a sinful person enter into a covenant with a holy God? Well, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, which we're going to look at later, we're told that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And that is exactly what happens next. Look at verse 6. And Moses, or he already sacrificed the animal, Moses 6, and Moses took half of the blood and he put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. Again, he's reading. So 
He, he, he said it to the people, they agreed. Then he wrote it down, that's the book of the covenant. Now he's gonna read it again to them in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. This is a vow before God. This is your wedding vows before God. Yes, God's been faithful. He's redeemed and rescued us and brought us out of Egypt. And now he's saying, live this way. And I'm looking at that, I'm saying, that's the life I want. Of course I'll live this way. Of course I will do it. And Moses, verse eight, took the blood and threw it on the people. Rev, bring out the blood. (laughs) Just joking, just joking. Behold, this is what he says. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now what's going on here? There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. They've killed this animal. They've cut this covenant. And now Moses fills a basin with blood and one half of it he dumps on the altar of God and the other half he dips it and later on we find out he dips it in kind of hyssop. It's a branch and he kind of sprinkles it and spreads it on the people. How weird. What's he doing? Well, the blood on the altar is a gift to God. It's a sacrifice to God. It represents a substitutionary sacrifice. It's saying, God, we deserve your wrath. When we come into your presence, we deserve to be locked up. When we come into your presence, we're not holy. We deserve condemnation. But this animal that we slaughtered, let its blood take our place. And it's a substitutionary sacrifice offered up to God. He's saying, God, we deserve to die. We have sinned against you and deserve death and condemnation and hell forever because of our rebellion. But will you take this offering instead? Will you take this animal Instead, will his blood be enough? Will you accept this blood instead of my blood? It's a pretty gruesome scene. And Moses takes the rest of the blood and he sprinkles it and splashes it and sprays it on the people. He's saying, there has been a sacrifice for you. Moses saying, I killed the animal. I made the covenant with God. I threw the blood on the altar and now I'm spreading that blood on you. There has been someone who to take your place. An animal died in your place. Its blood was shed instead of yours. And Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant. This is proof that you are in a covenant relationship with God, and then let's look what Moses does here. Verse nine, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. Now, please do not miss this verse. If you've read through the the Old Testament, this verse right here should be one of the most shocking verses you have ever read in your life. Verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. This is unbelievable. How can people come into the presence of God? This is like coming into the presence of the sun. This is like standing on the surface of the sun and trying to have a conversation with it. Its glory is greater than our glory right? They're sinners and they're coming into the presence of a holy God and they're there and they see God. And later on, we learned that nobody can see God and live. And, and so did they see God or did they not see God? I think it shows us right here in this text. They saw God ish, right? Look, 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 where where, where am I here? So it says they saw the God of Israel. There was, and this is the only description they give. There was under his feet, as it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So what I, what I take that to mean is they saw him, but they didn't get any higher than his feet. They saw, and he was, it was like perfectly clear, like the heavens, like the skies, like he was hovering above the mountain and it was perfectly clear and perfectly majestic. And it caught them up in just awe and worship. The scene, I mean, I don't even know what a sapphire stone is. I can't even get that in my mind. 
something majestic. This scene is almost indescribable. These men, 70 of them, see God, the leaders of Israel. These traitors, these rebels, these broken men who've been wounded by sin and have sinned against others, they get closer to God than anyone has ever been since Adam and Eve. And look what's, look what the scriptures say next. And he, this is God. This should be your first question when you're reading this text. This is the answer to the first question that should come to your mind when you read this text. This is the answer. Moses doesn't have to ask the question. Everybody, if you understand the context, you should ask the question. Hopefully I've built it out in a way that you're already asking the question. How can these people come into the presence of a holy God and not get obliterated? Right? That's what we should be asking. And look at what he says right here. God, he, he, God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. God, God didn't kill them. God didn't judge them. Should he have? Yeah. Injustice? Yeah, he didn't. He withheld his hand. He invited him up the mountain halfway. He's like, stay right there. Can't get any further. And he doesn't, doesn't destroy them. And look, they beheld God and ate and drank. Calls them up for the reception. He calls them up for the covenant meal together. And sitting in the presence of God, they're, behold, they're seeing him and they're eating and they're drinking in his presence. How can these people be doing this in the presence of God? There's only one way, and we are, many of us already know it, because of the blood that was sprinkled on them. They were under the blood and therefore safe from God's just wrath. Now, can I ask you this, this morning, what would it be like to see God and eat with him? It would be like falling in love. It would be like that first look into your newborn baby's eye. It would be like winning the lottery. It would be absolute and total ecstasy, honor, and awe all at once. It would be total sensory overload. That's what it would be. It would be everything you want in your life. That's what it'd be all in one moment. It would be like walking into the heart of the universe. And let me tell you, this and nothing short is what we all want. I hope you found out that that raise ain't gonna do it. I hope you found that that next class of car ain't gonna do it. I hope you've discovered that that next woman or that next man isn't going to satisfy you. That next drink isn't going to satisfy you. That next smoke or whatever isn't going to satisfy. You were made for this and nothing short of it. This is why nothing, nothing in this life ever seems to satisfy. That dinner, whew, that dinner almost did it. It was really good. It almost did it. That sexual experience, it almost got there. It hinted at something. Sometimes when you look into your kid's eyes and you see that spark, you see that there's something there. And then they take off and you gotta go do laundry. <laughs> like it was, oh, it was almost there. I wanna capture it. That's why we are infatuated by pictures and snap, 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 snap. I want it, I want it, I want it. I wanna keep it. It's gone. See, this is what we're made for. Philosophers call this the beautific vision. Why do we crave beauty? Think about it. Why are we captivated by beautiful people and beautiful sunsets? Because we were made in 
the image of total beauty. We were made in the presence of total beauty. We saw beauty once. Our souls existed before we were born out of our mother's womb and we saw beauty. We were made in the presence of beauty and we're always chasing it. We're always longing for it. We are made in the presence of total beauty in the image of absolute beauty by the most beautiful one himself, God Almighty, full of glory. This is why we, this is what we crave. And it's interesting to me, to, to me here that the people in Exodus 24, they get to see God's glory, but listen, they kind of get it. There's levels. They get it in stages. The people are at the base of the mountain and for them, it's kind, it, they're seeing it from afar and it's terrifying, right? It's absolutely terrifying. The, like fire on the mountain, right? Run, boy, run, right? Like that's what's going on right now. They're, they're out there looking and it's terrifying. But then the 70, they get called up a little bit higher. They get blood sprinkled on them and they get call, called up a little bit higher. And then Moses gets called up even higher to enter into the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God himself. Verse 12, then, Moses, then Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait here that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses has already written down the book of the covenant, the, old te- the, the, the book of Exodus here that we've got. And now he's going up higher and God's gonna actually give him visual representations of the 10 commandments to take with him. God's gonna write them on stone. Let's keep reading. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait for us here until we return to you and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance, appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Can you even imagine what Moses saw. Can you imagine what he felt? It's hard for me to, I don't, I, I don't think I can describe it. The people are at the mountain and they see terror and lightning and fire. They hear the invitation. I, you know, it's fear. I don't know if I could trust even going up there. The 70 get closer and they get to sit down and eat a meal with God and they have blood on them and that's like what keeps them from being judged. But then Moses gets to go up higher and deeper in. And he enters in into the glory and God gives him the 10 commandments. What did that look like? God, I could just see lightning etching the Ten Commandments, the first ever CNC machine, right? Just what was Moses doing? What's going on in this thing? Is this just some myth, some fairy tale? Moses is acting really as the as a priest. He's meeting with God on behalf of the people, on behalf of the nation. He was going into literally the holiest of holies. God's transcendent presence manifested itself inside of his own creation. He's the creator. He can do that when he wants to. 
And Moses gets to go up and meet with God inside this transcendent reality, this glory cloud. Moses gets to go in there and meet with him on behalf of the people. Now listen to this. This is what's, Lord Jesus, help me. I just had a little, I had a, like a, a, a reminder of the something John Piper said one time that I wrote down and found meaningful. He said, you were meant to stare into galaxies. You were meant to go to the ocean and, and explore the depths of the ocean. That's why God gave you eyes. And yet we're satisfied watching car crashes on TV. Right? And there's a sense here where I want this glory that it's in here in Exodus, right? I want, and this is what's nuts. That, oh. There, oh, how do I say this in the right way? This is the preview. This is the foreshadowing. This isn't, I don't even care about this anymore. I don't want to go back and be Moses and really see the glory of God and really go up into it. I don't want that. There's something better. Moses is foreshadowing something better for us. All of this in Exodus was a sign pointing forward to the reality of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God's one and only Son. The book of Hebrews, and we're going to go through a little bit in the book of Hebrews because I couldn't pick a verse, so I just picked 10. Uh, because Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the better Moses. What, what Moses did was a sign pointing forward to what Jesus did in reality. This was a foreshadowing to what Jesus culminated in Jesus did. And so I want us to go to, open up your Bibles to Hebrews. We're going to have to go there real quick. No, not real quick. Ooh, okay, real quick. <laughs> Hebrews. <clears throat> okay, first off, this is what we see. I want you to be kind of excited about what's going on in Hebrews, but I want you to be more excited, not about the foreshadowing, but about the reality, okay? And the first thing I want you to see from the book of Hebrews is that just like what's happening in Exodus, God is calling us in. I'm gonna have three points here. One, God wants us to draw near to him. I got six different times in the book of Hebrews, God says this, draw near to me. When you come near to me, do this. Draw near to me. Let's go and look. Hebrews 4, 16. We're gonna go fast. So find it and go fast. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Guess what? I think that's what that sapphire stone was that they saw. Ezekiel points to it as well. That sapphire stone that his feet are on, what is that? That's the throne of grace. And he says, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Go to 719. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Please hear me in the, this morning. I don't want you just to come to church. I want you to draw near to God. I want you to experience what it's like to be in a relationship near to him. Keep going. I don't have time to freak out over everything. 725. <laughs> Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Who? Those who draw near to God through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Chapter 10. Verse one, for since the law has but a shadow, that's, that's Moses. Exodus 24 is a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near, those who draw near. Saying the old covenant couldn't do it. 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Not fear, not trepidation, not thinking we're coming to him and he's gonna destroy us. Why? 
Why? Why? Look, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, just like the people were sprinkled with the blood before they could go up and they didn't, God didn't destroy them. Those who have put their faith in Christ have been sprinkled with his blood and been cleaned in baptism. 11.6. And without faith, It is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Number one, God wants you now in this life, 21st century America, to draw near to him and to find him there. Number two, we can only draw near to God through Jesus by faith. Hebrews 7.25 says he is able. I'll just go there, 7.25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Third, One, God wants us to draw near. Two, we can only draw near through Jesus by faith. Your good works, your morality can't do it. Only the perfect righteousness of Jesus can do it. And three, new covenant glory is greater than the old covenant glory. New covenant glory is greater than old covenant glory. Go to Hebrews 1, verse 3. Now, verse one, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, that's Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. Look, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the world word of his power. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is the new glory cloud that we get called up into. 2 Corinthians 4 says that we see God shines in our light by in our hearts by faith and he allows us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and we get captured by that beauty. Chapter 9 verse 13. I really don't care what time it is. <laughs> Chapter 9 verse 13. For the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more? That's how much greater, how much more sufficient will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Listen, guys, we're, we're invited in. This is how we get in, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. There's nothing separating us. That's through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus himself, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God wants us to see his glory. but nobody comes in with a swagger. Nobody earns the right to get in. Nobody behaves their way into it. You come in through blood. You come in through grace. And I, as your pastor, I want you to see that glory. 
I don't want you to just be good people. I don't want you to just come to church. I don't want you to just go to missional community. I don't want you to just serve our city. I want you to be enraptured by the glory of God. See, people who see the glory, they love God above anything. People who see the glory are captivated by him. They're almost drug along in life by him. You'd never have to, a person who sees the glory, you never have to ask them to come to church. They're knocking on the doors before we get here. They're, when do we have, why don't we have more services? Why don't we gather more often? Can I serve? You're already serving. I want to serve more. People who see the glory, you don't have to beg them to come to church. They desire God. That's why I don't talk a lot about reading your Bible and praying and doing good things. I talk a lot about God because people who see God do these things. If you see the glory of God, you want to go to the Bible where he's found most often and read about him and experience him. You want to go there every day. I need a dose of glory before I go to this, this job. <laughs> I need some glory in my life before I deal with all this trouble. People who see the glory of God want nothing more than to give their lives to him. And I feel like the most important thing I can do for you today as your pastor is be a dismal sign that points to the eternal glory of God and says, you were made for that. Get after it. Get near. Find it through Christ. Draw near. You're bored? Draw near. God gave us this little gift of boredom to go, you know what? I'm bored. What should I do? Not watch car crashes. Look through a telescope. See the glory of God in the heavens. Draw near to him in the scriptures. Can you see the glory of God? Does it move you? This is why, like, when you go and you have a baby, doctors don't come in the room and go, okay, here, here, listen. You just had this child. Now listen, you need to love it. Why, why don't we do that? Because people love they, their kids because they see them as glorious. They see them as special, as valuable, as precious. Good parents willingly and joyfully sacrifice their money, their comfort, their sleep, their freedom, all kind of things, all because of their children's glory. The same is true for the Christian. We joyfully, and willingly sacrifice the lesser glories of personal comfort, bigger houses, better vacations, a more comfortable pace of life because we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus and we've been ruined by it. If I had a mic, I would drop it. <laughs> it's been a long time since I preached this long. I feel good about it. <clears throat> Listen, for baptized believers, every Sunday we celebrate a covenant meal. Every Sunday we eat in the presence of our God who's holy and we don't deserve to be in his presence and, and in the presence of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a meal we, every week, we are reaffirming the covenant. See, this wasn't just a one-time deal that they did. They had to come back and they, they broke the covenant and had to reaffirm the covenant, right? They had to seal the deal again, confirm it, confirm it, confirm it over and over and over. Same thing we do every Sunday. We come to the Lord and we come into his presence and listen, what does he give us? He gives us the body of Jesus. This is why we get into his presence, For, for those in this room. This is a meal pointing towards a meal. This is another sign pointing for, forward. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we will see Jesus. We get a glimpse of him now. Paul says we see through a, a glass darkly, right? You've got sunglasses on. They've got, you know, how, if you've got kids, you pick your sunglasses up, you put them on and it's fingerprints and you can't see nothing through them right? That's how we see the glory of God these days. 
But there's going to come a time when the veil is completely removed and we see Jesus as he is and we'll see him in all of his glory and we'll be eternally satisfied. And let me, if you, for those of you who are struggling and you're suffering and you're even annoyed by my excitement this morning, okay? I get annoyed by my own excitement. I can't help it sometimes, okay? You're annoyed by it. You're pushing back against it. You don't know what I'm going through. Don't talk to me about glory. This is what I know. What I know is the first glimpse of Jesus in heaven will undo and eclipse all of the pain, all of the frustrations, all of the misunderstandings of this life. C.S. Lewis says that eternity will work itself backwards and reinterpret our lives where everything we go through in in this life will pale in comparison when we see Jesus. And what do we do? We get to come in and we get to eat with him. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb. We're going to eat with them. We're going to see him. I can't wait for that first glimpse of Jesus. We are going to get to see his face. And what we do this morning is a covenant meal that points points backwards at what Jesus has done, and it points forward to the meal that we're going to eat with him in eternity. Father, you gave us your word. And we believe your word returns void. You revealed yourself to your people in Moses' day. You reveal yourself to us in our day through Jesus Christ. You've revealed yourself this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for it. And God, let us draw near to your throne of grace. Let people this morning hear your invitation, that that you're pulling them in, you're wanting to reveal yourself to them. And let us realize that we come in by your sheer mercy and your sheer grace through the blood of Jesus. We don't have to be better. We don't have to be smarter. We don't have to do more. Open our eyes to see you. And will we put our faith in the body and the blood, the work of Jesus Christ for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.